Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Today on the podcast, we have Jedediah Jenkins. Jedediah was one of our first guests ever on the show back in 2016, and his episode remains to this day one of our most popular episodes of all time. His original episode is one of my favorites, and having him on again was such a treat. We got to have such a fun conversation, but we couldn't fit all of it into the final cut of the show. And so we thought for fans of Jedediah, it would be fun to release the full, unedited new conversation we had together last week. So that's what you're listening to right now. Please enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Jed, welcome back to Sounds Good. Hi, it's been way too long and I'm happy to be back. Thank God we're together. <laughs> I was trying to remember if the last time that we recorded for the show, did we do that in person or was that remote too? No, it was in person. It was in like a little phone That's booth right, looking in thing studio. in yeah. Nashville. Yeah. That's right. And since then, we've gotten to bump into each other. Uh, a lot all over the country, but not in the last year. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm I'm very, I mean, I'm such a podcast listener and such an audio person, especially like in this strange year, like going on long walks or even just drives to like get out of my house and look around. And I'll just listen to audiobooks and podcasts. And I'm very, I enjoy having someone's voice just live inside my head. It's I'm very the intimate. Exact same way. And I guess, you know how they used to say, are you a visual learner or an audio learner? I don't even know if any of that's real, but I definitely feel like I'm an audio learner. Like, mm -hmm. I just remember when I learn something in a podcast. You know, for me, it's that I actually am just... I, I, I am pulled along by a podcast or an audiobook better than if I'm reading something or you know, watching something and it, 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 it's almost like it keeps my attention better. And so then it absorbs on a deeper level. But I do sometimes wonder if I just had a little bit more of an attention span, if, if I would like reading, but I, I mean, I guess maybe we'll get into this, but I read your whole book in print. I would normally probably read your book in an audiobook, but I read it before it came out. Uh, and so I read it in print and I was just captivated the whole time. Thank you, Brandon. Well, there is, first of all, Oh my God, thank you. B, there is something about holding a physical book and words on the page. Like there is a difference. I don't know why. I mean, but to hear words, they float in your mind and they float away where if you read them and, and like a line or a moment strikes you, your eyes can just jump and read it again and then again, and then you mm. underline it. And then what, you know, it's just like, it's a different the medium really affects the flow and the spirit of the information and the yes. storytelling. So I think there's a place for everything. I agree. You know, I mean, like, that's why we have a, a print newspaper and a podcast. We don't right. see them as the, as competing. We see them as valuable separate things. Total. I mean, 
remember every time something new comes around, whether it's like, oh, Airbnb will kill the hotel or email will kill the handwritten letter. It's like, there's like room for things. I think there's a difference between an email and a handwritten letter. I mean, we all feel that. We know that very intuitively. You get a handwritten letter, it means so much more. But in the 90s, they didn't know that. They didn't know what the difference would be or if the handwritten letter would even survive. And now we still have like papyrus and, you know, stationary stores and pen stores and letter writing stores. I mean, that's still like <laughs> a big company. You're absolutely right. It's the, I, I, I think, I mean, and by, I mean, vinyl is selling more than it's ever sold in history. I, okay. Maybe that is, I, I do not know the exact statistic on that, but like there is something about these mediums that I don't think that they will ever die if they had value in the first place. Yeah. It's just a matter of, is there something more valuable? And if so, then that thing will of course take over. But if there's inherent value in something that will stick around. We love a tangent. I love, love just tangent. talking about anything with you. <laughs> I love it too. Um, is, we can kind of get into this and say, and maybe I'll just start off by saying that your new book, like Streams to the Ocean, notes on ego, love, and the things that make us who we are. It dives into seven themes over the course of seven sections, ego, family, home, friendship, love, work, and death. And throughout all these themes, I kind of found this secondary theme that I was really drawn to, and I think our community will be drawn to, of purpose. And and maybe I'll start by asking, why was this idea of purpose seemingly a priority for you? Or why was it buzzing around in the back of your head as you were carrying out all these themes? <sighs> well, I think purpose is a North Star, is like a motivating factor in everything. Whether you're looking for love, whether you're looking for the meaning of your family, your relationship with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, whether, I mean, obviously purpose has, when we hear that, a lot of what we think of is vocation and how what we're mm. doing with our life, what we're doing with our actions. Um, but there's a lot of people who would say being a parent is their purpose or... Um, something like that. I, it just really, it's kind of the spirit, the soul that, that fills all the other categories of life, even death. It's like, we look at death as this, a lot of us do as this invasion of our expectations as this unwanted visitor. And we, we ask, what is the purpose of death? Why does it happen? It's, it's almost a synonym for meaning. And I think really getting your head around what you mean when you talk about purpose, what mm. you mean when you talk about the meaning of your life is something that a lot of us never quite get to that foundational level of thinking. We're stuck on the surface. We're like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be a lawyer. And then you're like, oh, shit, this is like a horrible job. Let me try something else. <laughs> oh, we, we think the surface level manifestation of the like label of our life will, will populate downwards into giving our life meaning. Oh, maybe if I find love, okay, maybe if I have two kids, three kids, maybe like then once I've got the kids in the house, then I'm ready to roll. Like my life has meaning. And because you never really 
opened all the basement doors and looked around what was in there and what you're really looking for, you keep trying on different clothes and feeling ugly. As you were talking, I kind of just recognized that I found the most connection to purpose in your book in the in this chapters about ego and work. And I don't know what that says about me, but you just brought up the example of of family and death uh, and, and finding purpose within those. And, and I think that that is interesting. I do wonder if other people will read this with different perspectives on you know where they're finding purpose within these themes. But I, I think you bring up a good point that you do have to kind of open all those doors and and maybe find a little bit from each or at least explore all the options and, and then see where you're finding the depth of your purpose from. There's so much to talk about when we talk about purpose, which I love. One thing I think they they say that Gen Z specifically, millennials right behind them, have like a epidemic of depression and anxiety, unlike mm. other um, generations. And I, it seems to me that that is pretty easily explained, which is the... Our grandparents or great-grandparents' generation lived through the Great Depression. There, was, there were no jobs. And the a ethos in America, I'm specifically talking about middle-class, upper-middle-class Americans, which is millions of people. So when I make these broad statements, I don't mean everyone that's ever lived. I mean a big chunk of people with internet access who are having conversations online, which is a lot of us. And... They had grandparents who promised, you know what, I just want to work hard. I'm lucky to even have a job. And I want to give my kids what I never had because I had a dirt floor and grew up in a shack. And then they worked hard and they did that. And they gave the baby boomers a better life than they had. They gave them a suburb. They gave them, you know, secondary school. They gave them certain things. And what they were doing was in very simple terms, when your life is reduced to survival, to making it work, then a lot of the existential questions are pushed to the side. You're too busy trying to like get bread on the table. And our parents then raised with the ethos of give your kids what you didn't have also grew up like that. And then we are like three generations in of <laughs> trying to make life as comfortable as possible for your child. And, and what I don't think people really realize is there's a tipping point there. There's a watershed where if you cross it, then a, then a kid actually, they're reduced to, well, okay, you've got education, you've got food on the table, you've got a smartphone in your hand. Now you need to figure out what brings your life meaning? Because just getting a job sell at re in a retail store or any job, you know, like selling insurance, it's like, it doesn't, it no longer scratches the itch of, I need to, I'm so honored and lucky to even have a job and I need to provide for my family. It's just shifted this thing. It makes total sense that the external problems were largely removed and mm. that led to in and there was a current underneath all those external problems which was i have something to do in this life i ha i am busy 
doing something important, which is improving the life of myself and my family. And, and you can see the direct result of that. Like it's so clear, like, oh, I, I, I farm, therefore I have food or I work hard at this job, therefore I can buy a home for my children. And, and a lot of that has been removed. Exactly. And I mean, there's so many uh, things happening at once. For example, I mean, objectively, life has gotten fantastically better over the last hundred years. Absolutely. The, the like life expectancy has gone. I mean, even since like my mom was born in the 40s, it's gone up, what, 20 years? It's like, it's just a specific, especially my grandparents born in the 20s, like, and like infant mortality rates. They have um, buying power, access to gadgets, to smartphones, to a TV. These things, which were extreme luxury items, are now totally normal. And, but you look at so you would ask yourself, why is there this like depression and anxiety epidemic? And it really, I, I, there's many reasons, but like I said before, I think the generational differences and. They, there's a lot of um, data and metrics around comparison and how in the past, there's a fantastic documentary called Generation Wealth. I think it's on Amazon Prime. But um, it looks at millennials and Gen Z, specifically through the lens of American opulence. And it, for all of history, you only saw your actual neighbors. Okay, mm. like keeping up with the Joneses meant the people you could see with your eyeballs next to you. So normally a giant mansion isn't next to a little cute house. That's just normally they, they it, that doesn't happen. So you're next to a house that's probably pretty similar to yours and they might get a better lawnmower. They might get a different car, but they're going from Hyundai to Honda. It's not like Rolls Royce. Right. But with. The rise of media, specifically mass media, specifically things like reality TV, where you're watching the day-to-day -day lives of multi-multi-millionaires and billionaires, and you're following them on Instagram, and you're following them on whatever TikTok. Now you're intimately watching someone who has zillions of things you do not have. And they feel incredibly relatable too, because you do see these personal moments and you're probably, you know, watching them while you're on your toilet or like in on your couch in this way that feels like connecting with a friend. So it almost feels, oh, I could be that, you know, totally kind of you're like this idea that there's an immense amount of privilege this person carries. Well, what you think watching those shows are these people are no different than me. They just have money, which exactly. by the way. By the way, that's true. Everyone's a human being. Like no one is different than you other than a zillion, I mean, zillions of factors of the family they were born into and what <laughs> luck and business idea they had or whatever it is. But I just think it, it like exacerbates the um, our instinct for comparison and feeling less than like, I mean, I live with roommates in a house in LA and it keeps our rent low and I love it here. But I mean, I have friends who are my age who were, make tons of money and were able to buy a house and they live. I'm, 
I could be like, wow, that's, I feel less than I haven't achieved that yet. But then I check myself and I'm like, I am the happiest person on the planet. I love my roommates. I can afford food. I can afford ordering in food when I want to a luxury. I can afford gas in my car. Like the only thing that would make me unhappy is comparison towards things I don't need. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. So I really just try to like, I spend a lot of mental energy checking myself. And I mean, speaking about, it, it makes sense to me that when you thought of purpose, you thought of ego and work because when we think about it, like, what's my purpose? You're thinking like, what should I, what should my job be? Like, I don't think my purpose is to bag groceries or something, right? Like, and that's maybe somebody's purpose, but someone might say, well, that's not mine. Or for me, it was like, I was working at a nonprofit that was very cool. And I really loved it, Invisible Children, but I knew it wasn't my purpose. I knew I was helping other people in their purpose. I just felt like I had something else to do. I felt my life had some other skill it wanted to try um, to become good at or p- perhaps excellent at, which was writing. I wanted to write a book. I, my All my heroes are writers. I wanted to hold something in my hands that I had written bound as a book. But I mean, in that process, I will tell you, I've done it. I've now written two books. I hold them in my hands. I love them. They're my babies. I just sometimes flip through the pages and smell the pages like I would any book at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> like I love it. I truly love it. But when I look back at like the happiest days of my life, I mean, I am a very happy person and I every day is incredible. I just am happier as I get older. But when I was at Invisible Children and we were doing these events and we were like rallying Congress to help like save children in Central East Africa, like I was every bit as happy then as I am now. And that was before I had my dream job. Mm. And, And so what that did is that had that caused me to audit my expectations. I am I am very, very blessed and obsessed with the fact that I have my dream job currently. But if the goal in life is to feel like your life contributed something to this universe, I was doing that before and I'm doing it now. And so uh, I really wanted to break apart and figure out, okay, well, what is purpose? Like, what are we looking for? And, you know, that led me to the thoughts and conversation of, okay, well, for most of human history, like a million years, we didn't have jobs like we do now. We had hunter and gatherer and baby raising. Like, and maybe, maybe if you were really talented or creative, you got to be like cave painting guy or gal. <laughs> you know, like that's, there wasn't much specialization because it was hard to be alive and you were very busy. And I bet you, obviously I can't know this, but I bet you back then there wasn't a lot of existential dread and depression and sadness because, and you alluded to this earlier, there was direct correlation between the work of your time in your hands and beneficial production. So Mm. you go hunting 
and you do well, you come home with a wild boar. You plant some seeds and it's rainy season. You watch it grow and then you eat the fruit. You do something in your hut and mama is pregnant and you have a baby and now you're taking care of that baby. When you do something, you you viscerally feel how it had a benefit or a consequence. Yeah, that that's interesting too because like my my job is very much something that's, you know, purpose I run a purpose-driven company and we even create physical things that I can see and I can see when they when they're manifested, but I'll go whole days or even whole weeks where my my whole job is really just emailing and I can't see the the consequences of my actions and especially don't get to really like feel that in a visceral way but it is a difference and i you know i i still even though i have this job that i love and that i'm passionate about fall into that experience of of comparison or even depression around you know is this meaningful is this helpful is this something that matters well and that's where i mean we live in such a complex society I'm picturing job like a desk job or and you're in a business and you're doing you're crunching numbers, you're doing emails, you're wondering about this report and that memo, and you're having endless meetings and blah blah blah. And you're wondering like, what does this even do? Like, who cares if this random company lives or dies? Like, does that affect <laughs> anyone's life? And what that is, is it's your a million years of evolution that evolved to be like, if you go hunting. You should come home with something. If you go foraging for mushrooms, you should come home with a little satchel of mushrooms. Like we want that feeling of I did something and something happened. That's like deep, deep, deep in us. And so, of course, in a society as complex and distributed as the one that we live in, we're going to miss that feeling. And so for me, I'm like, to the best of your ability, do things that scratch that itch. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more of this conversation with Jedediah Jenkins. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sounds Good is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM is the company that lets you support local bookstores every time you download an audiobook. Instead of getting audiobooks from the giant company that advertises on other podcasts, you can pay the same price, get access to more than 150,000 audiobooks, including podcast guests like Jedediah Jenkins and Ruthie Lindsay, and support a local bookstore with every download. I've been a Libro FM subscriber for a long time now, and I absolutely love it. They have all my favorite audiobooks. Their app is fantastic and easy to use, and I love being able to choose which bookstore I want to support. 
As a special offer for Sounds Good listeners, Libro FM is offering two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with the code GOOD. There's no reason not to try it and get started listening to two incredible audiobooks you've been meaning to read. All you have to do is visit the website Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and use the promo code GOOD to get started with two audiobooks and to help support this show. Sounds Good is sponsored by BetterHelp. Whether you feel overwhelmed by the news, you're working through interpersonal relationships, unpacking trauma, or just need someone to talk to, BetterHelp is a fantastic solution for you. I know it's been a fantastic solution for me. BetterHelp makes it easy to get matched with your own licensed professional therapist. Plus, it's affordable and financial aid is available for those who need it. You can get started today by just answering a few questions about yourself and what kind of therapist you're looking for. You'll get matched with your perfect BetterHelp counselor and ready to start in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is offering a special offer for Sounds Good listeners. Get 10% off your first month when you take your quiz to get started at betterhelp.com slash good. That's betterhelp.com slash good. I was about to ask because th- this idea that, okay, this explains the discontentedness. This explains why we, you know, can fall into this feeling of purposelessness, even when we have things that are focused on purpose. Uh, but how do we overcome that? Because we can't just go back to, I, I guess, I suppose you could just go back to, you know, an agricultural or hunter gatherer lifestyle, but that, you know, that's probably not in the cards for most people. So what is the solution to this? Well, I don't know because I've never lived anyone else's <laughs> life, but I know that I do things very intentionally to feel a sense of positive production. I plant wildflowers every spring and I check them every morning and watch them grow. And it makes me so happy. Okay. Every morning I race to make my coffee and I go check on my babies. And like when I write something, what's actually fun about writing online is I'll write an Instagram post. I'll write a blog post or a magazine thing for somebody. And then it's like, it's not that big. And it's something that now lives on the internet. And I did that. And now someone can respond to it. Someone can read it. And anybody can do that. That's how I started writing, was writing on Tumblr. Actually, it was Blogspot, I think. (laughs) Um, But whether it's you have kids and you organize once a week, like an activity or a thing where you're teaching them a new skill or teaching them a new word. I don't even know what it like giving yourself little wins, little acts of production where you do something and something happened. You build something in the backyard, you build a bird feeder, whatever it is, then boom, it exists like that. That is, we have so many generations of evolution in us asking for that feeling and you can do it all you got to do is give it a little a little bump and it'll be like oh thank you okay as you were what i'm what i'm kind of hearing from you is this difference between it's it's kind of the difference between consumption and creation the idea that when you create something and you put it out in the world 
that 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 fulfills a deep need within us and it it doesn't have to just be you know sustenance it can be a business it can be a post on social media it's something but there's probably a layer below that too right of like this has the power to impact something else you know it's not just i don't think that you just loved the act of putting that blog post on the internet as much as perhaps the way that that could impact somebody. And it's not like you're you're just planting those wildflowers and then never seeing them again. You're going and looking at them again to, to gain that joy for you and probably for other people. And so it, it does seem like there is a, a, a connection to how our creations have a domino effect beyond our immediate control or immediate imagination. Absolutely. But I do think that there is, there are two problems that I think in in the conversation of purpose that are common. One is the idolatry of magnitude and the other is the idolatry of impact, which Mm. is, which is those wildflowers. I don't give a flying buckety wuckety if anyone else sees them. I do that for me. I like them. And I like that. I guess I like that bees and butterflies like them too, but I don't care if anyone else sees them. They're in my backyard, but I love them. And I, that has a lot of value to me. I matter too. I exist. And I, I mean, as a evangelical Christian for all of my twenties and working at a nonprofit that's specialized in central East Africa, I encountered a lot of people who they're, they idolized service to a point that was pathological to a point where they didn't have a personality and they didn't have, there was just something um, broken in their identity that was, it became obsessed with purpose and impact. And then if you try to like find a person behind those eyes, it wasn't there. And it was almost, you could feel that they had an internal pain that they had externalized in saving others which is, I mean, I'm glad it externalized in that way, but it also, it creates a fever around help that can make the help um, reckless. That is so interesting. And it does, it reminds me of this part of your book. And I actually wrote it down. I have it in front of me where you talked about how a lot of us have these early moments that become the structural support beams for our lives. And you said, we aren't born into a self. It is created without our consent. We build ourselves on top of comments, offhanded insults, inadequacies. By the time we wake up to ourselves, we are a Jenga stack of experiences that we spend the rest of our lives deconstructing. How do you think that these early accidental moments shape our passions and desires and the way that we want to leave a mark on the world? And... If it's inevitable that we all have that, then doesn't it make sense that we would want it to at least manifest in a way that helps? Or do we still have to do the work to unpack that and deal with that so that it's coming from a healthier place? Listen, I think there's a lot of unhealthy people who do amazing things. You know, there's like real, I believe extreme ambition is almost always 
um, rooted in unhealthy mentality. Mm. And the most, and I mean, you watch the, um, I love this movie, the Michael Fassbender, Steve Jobs movie. And he changed the world with his ambition. And he was a deeply unhealthy person. And I'm glad that he did what he did and changed the world. Um, do I wish he had a better relationship with his family? Sure. <laughs> but if he had a better relationship with his family, would he have been so obsessive about a product? No. So there's a yin and a yang there that his impact was as big as it gets, the biggest company in the world. And yet the micro impact of his relationship with his daughter and his family it will reverberate into history and in all of his biographies and into the real life of a daughter that he hardly knew. And so, uh, so there's like, yes, I, I, I think doing the work in your own life to understand your motivations, to, to, to heal from a place of healing, to seek to bless knowing that you are blessed there's just all i'm listen i'm an enneagram seven i want to enjoy <laughs> my life i want to smell the flowers and let the sun hit my face and watch the sunset and the sunrise okay and because of that i want others to thrive i want there to be joy in the morning I want people to, when they love someone else, it isn't from a hole in their heart looking to be filled because that is, that is idolatry. Mm. I want someone to love others because they love themselves first. And, and, and that love comes from an unending well of abundance. It doesn't diminish the candle to light another candle. And that's, I think a lot of people work themselves to death looking for purpose, looking for impact, the idolatry of magnitude. Oh, I can't just, I can't just help my family. I can't just help my community. I need to change the world. I need to be in 17 countries. I need to have an IPO and make a billion dollars. Like, no, 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 no. I can't just do this over here. And what I think it's called Dunbar's number, the idea that humans evolved in, in, groups of about 150. And you notice that when a company grows larger than 150 people, all of a sudden they have to have an HR department. They have to have, they have to break off into teams and divisions. Why? Because the average human brain cannot process more than 150 relationships. You can't really remember that many people well. You can't remember how they are with others. If they have siblings, are they married? And so you start to just categorize and figure out ways of interacting with large groups. I say that because when I write a book, when I give a talk, whatever it is, I know that I can't feel more than 150 people. And that's, and that's why when somebody comments on something you do online, if you have 10,000 followers and you get three negative comments, you feel that deeply because you're used to three people out of 150 that don't like you matters. You have enemies in the tribe who want you gone. And so you need to obsess over solving that problem. You need to win them to your side. 
that's why negative comments have such an impact on us. We are designed to like figure out what the conflict is so that we can all live in harmony. And so to me that like, and I have friends, I live in LA, I have friends with million an impact on millions. And I know they're like, when I'm in front of 10,000 people in a crowd, I can't feel that. I can't really see them because of the lights. I can see the front row. And yes, the roar of them cheering or, or booing feels like something, <laughs> but it doesn't feel any different than a room of 50 people. It doesn't. And I can tell you that right now when I have thousands of people read my book, I love it. Oh my gosh, that means my words are connecting with people. That means my publisher is going to let me write another book. But if 50 people read my book, it would feel the same to me. Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about. And do you, I guess, do you feel like you feel that way because you've done your work? Because you have emotionally dealt with maybe these these wounds that you know most of us spend our whole lives deconstructing and and that's why you're able to have that perspective and and I and I wonder you know what an unhealthy Jedi Jenkins <laughs> would say you know about you know wanting more people to read the book because that does matter because of an insecurity or, you know, wanting a bigger crowd. Like it's, it's, I, yeah, I, I guess, I guess my question is, is that a perspective you hold because you feel like you've done intentional work to get there? And and if so, what did that look like before you did that work? Well, I would say it, the work isn't about necessarily healing the wound. It's identifying the wound because I mm. feel like we're, we are living our lives puppeted by these forces that we inherited from childhood or just are in our nature and our brain chemistry. And so these things are pulling the strings. They're behind the wheel. And if you just know it is, it makes you just understand your own life better. For I just feel like such an observer of my own life, of my own emotions, of the things that happen. I am the front row seat to this movie of my life. And I want to see how things work. I don't just want to be confused. Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why did I find the love of my life and I'm still unhappy? Why, like, If you can figure out these whys, then you can either cut them off at the head and actually you, you can outsmart your own insecurities. Like mm. for me... I could be sitting over here checking the sales of my book. I wonder if it's going to be a New York <laughs> Times bestseller. I wonder if I'm going to have this many sales. Ooh, my goal is 100,000. My goal is 150,000. Um, or I could just be like, I can't believe I was in the airport and I saw my book on the shelf. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I don't know how it got there, but I'm glad it's there. Or, oh my gosh, someone sent me an email last week where they said, they came out to their family because they read my book. Like, that's enough. That is incredible. I can't believe I got to do that once, much less many times. That's an incredible honor to to play that role in someone's life. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to play that mm. role in someone's life. And I mean, you think about there. 
the human brain can only handle so much information. Think about how many people have walked up to Oprah and said, you changed my life. I'm sure she loves <laughs> to hear it. But at this point, it can't be that meaningful to her. It can't. It can be in aggregate. It can. She goes to bed saying my life had impact. But every like. I don't know if you've ever had a 90 minute massage. Yes. But I have. And it's amazing. And I would, I mean, I prefer it, but in the third 30 minutes, you're like, am I getting numb? Like you're like, you're squeezing me and it, I've been squeezed for so long. It just becomes less over time because it's no longer that first 10 minutes where, oh my God, someone's touching me. This feels incredible, which, wow, I need this pandemic to go away because I would love this so <laughs> But is what I'm saying making sense? I just think people totally. don't understand what, when they say they want a, a better life or a different job or this or that, my at- attempt with this book and my, my curiosity at, at being alive is simply, I want to know who's making the decisions. Why did I wake up feeling this way today? Why? And I want to unpack those things, put them out on the table, look at them and say, oh, you're in control here. Okay. Well, now that I know what game we're playing, let's try to play it better. You mentioned in your book, you talked about this idea that after your first book, a lot of people who admired the way that you quit your job and biked from Oregon all the way down to the bottom of Patagonia, uh, they, they were basically asking, like, how do I also quit my job? How do I identify my passion? And in, and so what I kind of have gathered from your book is this idea that that you're almost encouraging people to unpack that to a degree, to say, what is it about your job? What is it about this call for adventure that you're drawn to? Because there is deep, beautiful value in that. And there's something so special about that. And of course, you had an incredible experience with this and you wrote a book about it that's beautiful. But, you know, what what do you wish that, you know, what's the thought process that you would want people to go through if they are, you know, having that, that, desire to kind of follow in your footsteps? Like what's the, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves? Well, I love this question because it lends itself to a metaphor. Imagine you have only ever eaten chicken nuggets for your whole life. (laughs) McDonald's chicken nuggets. That's the only food you've ever had. And so you don't actually know they're called chicken nuggets. You think they're called food. That's food. And you go to a new city or maybe the McDonald's closes or something and you are starving and you are like, I need food. I cannot possibly survive without this food and I cannot find chicken nuggets anywhere. And you're surrounded by other restaurants, Indian food, Thai food, sushi, whatever, hamburgers, they're everywhere. But you, you think that hunger is only satiated by chicken nuggets. You're missing out on not only being full again and being nourished, but actually perhaps better food, more interesting food, and the smorgasbord of what life has to offer. And so for me, it's all about the mislabeling of things. If you think I have to be a doctor or I have to be a mom or I have to be this or that, 
to give my life meaning. You're, you have a hunger in you for something. And understand that that hunger can be transposed on many different things in different seasons of your life. And that hunger changes in different seasons of your life. And so there's so many ways to satiate that hunger and just don't mislabel it too early. Mm. And just, and for me, that comes from reading, trying new things, seeing life, not as one long commitment, but as different seasons. Okay. You're a barista now. Maybe you're going to try this. Maybe you're going to try that for a number of years. These are all tools on your tool belt for the house you're ultimately building with your life. I think about your life and and I've been following you since Tumblr or Blogspot and, and definitely since Invisible Children. And and if I were to oversimplify <laughs> your life from my perspective, I, it would be Jedediah goes to law school. Jedediah works for a nonprofit. Jedediah becomes a, a traveler and a writer and you know, I'd sprinkle in things about you being an entrepreneur or a social media influencer. And, and you talk about this idea that you know you feel like your goal or your your you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode that uh that you found a deeper purpose in wanting to be a writer to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um the the I guess uh, backing up. You found a deeper desire in wanting to be a writer to some degree. But I just think about how if you had too early on labeled that you wanted to be a writer and could only be a writer, you would not have all of these stories to write about. And also the inverse of if you had too early on said, I love law school or just my identity is that I'm a lawyer, you would have never gotten to go and have those other experiences and and you may not have that full that fullness. And so I like what you're saying about this idea of, of essentially holding things loosely because when you hold these loosely, that's what allows you to find purpose not in one singular thing, but in in moments when you're present and that will shift and change. Am I, am I articulating that correctly? I, yeah, absolutely. I think like my motto for like streams to the ocean or this conversation is expand the name of your hunger mm. because that like, that's the journey we're on is expanded. It's bigger than you think it is. And I, that's, that was a hard one lesson. I, from the age of 10, when I saw Jurassic park, I thought I was going to be Steven Spielberg. I was certain of it. And I, I was given a lot all through middle school and high school. Everyone's like, Jed's going to go off to Hollywood and be a big shot director. So I got a lot of affirmation for that. And I was like, and it's like, wow, it's so rare when a kid knows what they want to be, but it's so inspiring when a kid knows exactly what they want to be. Like this kid's going to, I had teachers asking for my autograph in like high school hmm. because they knew I was going to go off and be Steven Spielberg. Then I got to USC film school and I was like, oh no, no, I'm not only bad at this. I hate this. <laughs> And I've got everyone expecting me to be Steven Spielberg. And I, 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 I talked a big talk and I actually, oh, no, 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 no. What have I done? And that was where I, I learned, oh, the thing that I loved in Steven Spielberg was that I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to create worlds in people's minds that took them somewhere. But I didn't know that. I thought I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. 
But I think the, the idea is idolatry when you're young is pointing you in the direction of your hunger. You just can't mistake um, the idol for the hunger, mm. for, for the only satiation of that hunger. Interesting. It, it, you, you kind of get to look at this map or this compass and allow it to point you, but maybe you should never feel like you fully arrived because you know, perhaps you did arrive at that point, but now you've learned new lessons and you can take those lessons and apply them to a new adventure, a new experience. I, I have no doubt that, you know, your life would be completely different if you had not had that encouragement to go to Hollywood and attempt to learn filmmaking. And that's what sets you up for a future thing. And we all have opportunities to allow our experiences to inform us, even the experiences that are not glamorous. You know, some of these things sound super glamorous. It's the idea of going to USC to study film, but the the not glamorous aspects, which you dive into in the book as well, are so informative in helping us, uh, you know, tell a fuller story with our lives. I just think it's everything is everything, you know, like Richard Rohr says, everything belongs. It's Whatever the season of life you're in, whatever whatever you've learned up to this point is integral in your understanding of what to do next. And that is why everything is beautiful. I know that you have to uh, go in a minute. And so I want to kind of... It, it, it sounds funny, but I, I want to wrap up by asking you almost the same question I, I started with, which is simply put... For somebody listening to this who wants to find their purpose but doesn't want that purpose to be shallow, they don't want it to be strictly stuck in one theme, whether that's you know just their job or just their ego, how do they do that? How do they, how do they find a true, meaningful, authentic purpose? The first thing I would say is one of my favorite quotes, which is a question rightly stated is half answered. And so that's kind of my intention with like streams of the ocean is let's get to the bottom. Let's get in. Let's be asking the right questions. And then we're halfway there. Cause if you spend your whole life asking the wrong questions, Mm. you're only going to get wrong answers. Or if you get a right answer, it's even worse. Cause then you're going to think you asked the right question and you didn't, and then you won't be able to repeat the process. And so one, I think if you are at a place where you're looking around your life saying, I've got a hunger and I can't figure out what it is, then you're on the right track of asking right questions. Um, but don't, and if you, if you know not to presume what the answer is just yet, um, I think that's also very true and very telling. But I, I mean, I often, I, was so impacted by one of my faves, um, Elizabeth Gilbert. And she said in this conversation, follow your curiosity, which is simply, if you don't know what to do, follow your curiosity. Like what interests you? What piques your attention? Move towards that. And if it's not right, it'll tell you. Um, but, you know, the, the thing is like when I wanted to be a writer, when I wanted to go on my bike trip, it wasn't that someone told me. It was that I heard of these things. I heard of someone riding their bicycle across South America. The moment I heard it, it landed on me like the truth. Mm. I just knew I'm doing that. And it was, uh, and so for everyone, I feel like there's going to come a moment where 
if you're reading a lot, if you're pursuing the truth, if you're tuning your ears to what the universe is showing and telling you, something is going to hit your ears or your eyes and you're going to say, I have to try that. I have to do that. And by the way, I when I said I wanted to be a writer, I said I have to try that. I didn't know if I would succeed. I thought I might be bad. But I just knew I had to try that. And it changed my life. I think it's liberating to say, I should try that. I have to try that. That's what I would tell people. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's the perfect way to wrap this episode. Jedediah, thank you so much for talking today. Thank you for this beautiful book of wisdom. I laughed and cried, uh, which sounds like a cliche, but it's absolutely true. (laughs) And I cannot wait for everybody else to get to read it too. Oh, me too. Thank you so much, Brandon. You're the best. That's Jedediah Jenkins, author of the new book, Like Streams to the Ocean, which is released tomorrow. You can purchase the book wherever books are sold. Be sure to follow Jed on Instagram at Jedediah Jenkins, where he shares inspiring and moving messages with his community. You can also search for Sounds Good Jedediah Jenkins wherever you listen to podcasts to listen to our first episode together, which remains one of our most popular episodes of all time. It's still just as relevant today as it was then. This podcast was created by Good Good Good. At Good Good Good, we help you feel more hopeful and do more good. You can find more good news and ways to make a difference in our weekly email newsletter, our beautiful print good newspaper, and online at goodgoodgood.co. This episode was created by Kaylee Thompson, Megan Burns, and me, Brandon Harvey. It was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. Please do us a favor by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. And when you find an episode you love, please share it on Instagram so we can repost you. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and live a life of intention and purpose. And we'll be back next week with more good news and good action. Sound good?